And good morning to Church in the City. It's a bit disappointing that we can't get together. And actually, it's a bit of an adventure getting to your church anywhere, working out where the car park is and which lift to go up, all those kind of things. And that makes it a bit of a challenge. But maybe next time, we've kind of taken social distancing to an extreme. Uh, I'm currently in the Lilydale Church, and uh, they've just finished live recording their church service. And uh, I thank them for allowing me to use uh, the uh, audio team, the visual team, to make this happen today. How big is God's grace is the question I'm looking at today. And the answer is quite simple. It's big enough. But let me explain it a little bit. I want to talk about grace because it's something we need to know about and need to understand and I'll come back to that directly. You know, we, we look at grace and we say it's unmerited favour. And the, and the best way of describing it is when the police stop you, you've been speeding. And uh, after talking to you for a while, he says, look, I'll let you off this time. Don't do it again. And you drive away breathing with relief. That's grace. That's grace. You were guilty and he's let you off. And I like this, um, just one sentence from John Stott. Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Love is the key. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life, eternal life. It was hard to understand back then in the time of Jesus. You see, the Greek poet Hesiod in that era said there were 30,000 gods in the Greek Roman world. 30,000 gods. And when the first Christians began to talk to the people around them and they talked about one god, they were laughed at because there had to be more than that. In fact, they were called atheists because they only believed in one God. That seems strange to us, but that's how it was happening. Um, in, in the cities around the world at that time, there would be about 15 to 20 temples where you could go worship the gods. But every family could have their own particular God. And as the Christians began to talk about Jesus and, and when they talked about for God so loved the world, they were just laughed at. They, they had 30,000 gods and they couldn't find one that would love them. Because the gods, in their mind, used to use humans as playthings, used to use them in such a way that they would have to try to please the gods, have to try to help uh, find ways of bringing them back so that they were on side with the gods. So this was a new message in the pagan world back then. And when we look at today, we have our message about God and Jesus is so misunderstood because the atheists have kind of taken over the discussion and people don't get it. But when you get it, and when you understand it, and when you look at life 
through God's eyes, when you look at life through Jesus, it makes a difference. God gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's an important message. It's a different message. Jesus didn't come to judge the world. Sometimes we forget about verse 17, John chapter 3, verse 17, where it says, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus did not come as a judge, but as a savior. It's worth remembering that. I mean, he could have come in majesty, maybe on a huge cloud in the sky, and we would have all seen him, we would have all bowed down to him and worshipped him. He didn't do that. He came, as a ba- he came as a human. He came as a baby born in a smelly manger. This is God of heaven coming down as a baby, as a human. He, he lived as we do. Oh, he didn't have all the technology, no. But he lived as a human. He knew what it was like to perspire. He knew what it was like to work hard. He was human, experienced life as a human. God so loved, he became one with us, not to condemn, not to judge, but as saviour. That's grace. It's undeserved. He's letting us off in a sense. Now, salvation has often been misunderstood. But when I was a student at Avondale, when I first went there for the first year, maybe year and a half, my sense was it, it, was, it was like having the, the scale balance. If I had enough good stuff, a bit Pelagian, if I had enough good stuff happening, I would be part of God's kingdom. Also had the theory that God probably wanted a certain amount in the kingdom, and if I could just kind of edge my way into the bottom of that, I would be okay. I would be part of God's kingdom. Um, th- there was no assurance in that. No assurance whatsoever because it was all about me. And, and I knew, like Augustine said, I cannot not sin. There were times when I was good, but there were times when I was bad. There was no, no constant. And really, to go that way, you'd have to head for perfection. Then I made this huge discovery. It was a long weekend, and... Uh, I knew we couldn't go away anywhere for the weekend. Uh, poor college students just struggling to get by financially. And so I went to the library and I thought I'd find a book, take home and read. In the library, as I was looking along the shelves, I came across this book titled, Let Me Assure You. You, you see, the problem I was having was that I had no assurance in my salvation. So the, the title jumped out at me, written by... Edward W.H. Vick, an Adventist academic, I think at the time working in uh, uh, Newbold College. And I took it home. It really opened up my eyes, my spiritual life, my uh, sense of certainty about salvation. Listen to this, page one. By the way, I went back last year. I was at Avondale College for a week. And I went back into the library and found it. It is a well-worn book. And don't do this. 
but inside, lots of passages underlined. It's been there for a long time, but uh, lots of passages underlined. Did I say don't do that? But page one, grace must be the starting point and the reference point in all theology. Good point. When you're considering God, this is true. This is what God wants. He wants to give us salvation. He wants to give it to us. He loves us so much. That's grace. Listen to this. This is what I needed to hear, to know. God is for humans, not against them. He is for them because he is God. That's what God is, the ultimate who is for humans. That's also on the first page. But but check, God is on the side of humans. I'd never pictured God that way. I'd pictured him as distant. I pictured him as watching down. Oh, right, wrong, yep, get him. Don't, no, that one's okay. God is on the side of humans. It was new. God wants us in his kingdom. He wants us in his kingdom. And he's done all he can to get us there. That's important. God sent his son into the world, John 3.17, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Here's more from the book. Grace comes to humans. It has to, for humans, helpless and ignorant of their helplessness, cannot find it of themselves. Grace is not in humans. It makes humans what, with God's help, he may become. He may become. And one more. This is simple. Reconciliation is of grace through Christ by faith. That's life-changing. It was never about me and my scorecard. It was about God. It was about me putting my faith, my trust in God. That's where it was at. Um, and, and so many times in the letters that Paul writes, he's talking to people who come along and say, yes, 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 it's about grace, but, you know, we ought to circumcise the man, but we ought to keep these holy days, but we need to do this. And Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. You are saved by grace. And when you get it, when you understand what grace is, you live a life out of that which draws you closer to God. So many Christians don't get grace. Ephesians chapter 2 is important. Verse 4, But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. It's by grace. It's what Jesus has done, not what we do. We, we don't earn salvation. We can't buy salvation. And, and we know we're not perfect. That's why we need Jesus. Salvation is only in him, the one who is perfect, who is the Savior, who is God. Verse 8, Ephesians 2, God saved you by his grace when you believed. Believing. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. It's not about what you do with your clothes. It's, it's, it's not about what you eat. It's about belief in God, a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so no one, no, so none of us can boast about it. But one of the problems we have is that we live in a reward-for-effort world. You know, reward-for-effort world, things like study hard, you'll get good marks. Work hard, you'll get the job done, and the boss will be pleased. 
work out, you'll get strong. Invest wisely, you'll make money. Reward for effort. And God says, there's no effort you can do for salvation. I will give it to you. Trust me. Trust Christ. He has done it for you. He's died the death you should so that you can live the life that he lives. Um, God knows we can't do it. For God so loved the world that whoever, and whoever means whoever, whoever means whoever. Chapter 8 of John has this picture of Jesus in the temple. He's in the temple, a a crowd's gathering around, so he sits down. This was was an era where the person who was to speak sat down. Uh, If you remember the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up, the Bible says, and yelled at the, shouted is the word, shouted at the crowd. So Peter was the first preacher to actually stand up. He may be the blame for shouting preachers too. But Jesus is talking to the crowd and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who are there. And all of a sudden, it's interrupted. And there's a group of more teachers of the law, Pharisees, bringing this woman to him. And they throw her down on the ground and say to him, what are you going to do about this woman who's committed adultery? The law of Moses says, stone him, stone her, stone her. And uh, this is how John records it. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? What do you say? This woman, this weeping woman, this weeping woman who expects to be stoned and die soon because of a sin. And Jesus looks at her and, and following the custom, she's, um, she's been stripped to the waist to signify that she's an adulteress. And, and by the way, where's the man? It takes two to commit adultery. Where is the man is the question. Terrified, defenseless, publicly humiliated, the woman cows before Jesus, her arms covering her bare breasts. She dare not look at him. She dare not look at him. To her, she's, he's simply another man ready to condemn. And, and what's happening now is just a distraction, a delay in the inevitable. Jesus says nothing. nothing. The Bible says, John 8, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust of the ground with his finger. I I like how this scene is described in the Desire of Ages. Impatient at his delay and apparent indifference, the accusers draw nearer, urging the matter upon his attention. But as their eyes following those of Jesus fell on the pavement at his feet, their countenance changed. Their face before them were the guilty secrets of their own lives. Still, says John, they kept demanding an answer. All right, Jesus, what what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? So Jesus stands up and he says, all right, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. Which one of you 
is going to cast the first stone. And, and it's interesting how the men drifted away. Drifted away. And I like, because I'm older now, that the older ones drifted away first because they got it. They got it first. Maybe there's wisdom with age. I'm waiting for it. Jesus stops writing, stands up, and says to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord. Jesus said, and neither do I. That's grace. That's grace. I mean, the, the men who brought her there were right. The Mosaic law says she should be stoned. She should be stoned. She should have been killed. And the men who brought her to Jesus knew they were right. And they knew that Jesus knew that about the law as well. But this was not Jesus' purpose. John 3.17. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Philip Yancey, and what's so amazing about grace, says, God is for humans, not against them. He is for them because he is God. This is what God is. That is what God is, the ultimate who is for humans. And Jesus says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. That's grace. That's grace. And then he adds, go and sin no more. See, see, when you understand about grace, you understand that it changes your life. It gives you a different direction. It gives you a different purpose. It, it, you know that God is with you. And it changes how you think, how you act. And, and as she walks out of the temple, she's a different woman. I, I imagine her going immediately to the court of the women in the temple. And thanking God for Jesus. And thanking God for Jesus. And, and I, I can imagine her being part of the group of women who followed Jesus around to care for him in his ministry and the disciples. And there were quite a few of them. I imagine her joining that group. I, I imagine her living perhaps in Jerusalem. And uh, every now and again, she'd go up to some of the younger women, some of the girls, and say to them, let me tell you my story. It might help you in decisions you make. It does change your life when you meet Jesus. It is a life-changing event. Ephesians 2 goes on, verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We are God's masterpiece. What's a masterpiece? The Macquarie Dictionary says, one's most excellent production as in an art. Paul says, we are God's most excellent production. Grace does that. Grace does that. Um, we have nothing to recommend ourselves, but God works within us. It's not what we bring to the party. It's what God brings to the party. That's the important thing. That's the important thing. He's created us anew, recreated, recreated us. And grace begets grace as we begin to tell our story to other people. Grace begets grace. Once you've experienced it, once you see it 
for the first time, you see it more and more. You see it around you. You see it in the good things that God is doing through his people. And, and often it's in very simple ways. Um, there was a church lunch probably a year ago now where uh, I was talking to uh, someone the next day after the lunch and she told me that she had gone to the church lunch, really didn't want to go, but she'd saw, seen someone and she said, look, well, come to lunch with us for the day. The other woman wasn't planning to. She said, oh, all right, we'll get together. Next day, she gets a message from that woman saying, you know, I really had a bad week. I wasn't going to go to the lunch, but thank you for sharing your time and that time with me because it really was good. That grace, showing grace, very simple ways of doing it. Um, a few months back, uh, I took a meeting for some Salvation Army officers uh, about preparing for retirement. It's one of the things I have an interest in. And Margie, my wife, was with me, and I was getting ready up the front to take the presentation, and she tried to find a seat, couldn't find one anywhere, ended up sitting up the back on the edge of a table. And one of the Salvation Army officers went up to her and said, uh, hello, I don't know you, who are you? And she said she was related to me by marriage. And she said, oh, don't sit here, come down here. And she sat near, right near the front. It's simple. It's grace. Grace in action. Grace in action. Watching out for others. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, asks this very awkward question. The time has come to return to a practical question. If grace is so amazing, why don't Christians show more of it? And he tells a story of Billy Graham in Russia way back in 1992. He was there for several weeks. And this was during the Cold War, Cold War between America and the US, uh, Russia and the US. Um, he ran a meeting in Moscow where 155,000 people turned up and 40,000 of them responded to the call for, to follow Jesus at the end of the meeting. And he met civic leaders, he met church leaders. And in the States, conservative Christians were condemning him, saying, what, what, what are you doing? They are the enemy. You're not talking about human rights. You're not talking about Christian rights. You should be doing that. And uh, they wanted him to take on what they called a prophetic role to bring them back to order. And one Christian accused him of setting the church back 50 years. Graham listened, lowered his head and responded these words, I am deeply ashamed. I've been trying to church set the church back 2,000 years. I just love that answer. He's trying to take it back to when Jesus was on the earth, when Jesus in his sandals walked this earth. And it's a call for us to walk in Jesus' hands because we understand the grace of God, because we have the grace of God. We're passing it, up, passing it on. How big is God's grace? Big enough. Big enough. That's the answer. Let me read you something from Steps to Christ. 
we shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes. We are, but we are not to be discouraged, even if we are overcome by the enemy. We are not cast off, not forsaken, and rejected by God. It's not about the momentary missteps. It's about the direction we're heading in. How big is God's grace? It's big enough. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great love you have for us, the love you have shown us in Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and in the promise that he's coming back again. We look forward to that day. Remind us again and again of how great your love is. And we rejoice in the grace you have for us. And that means we look forward to Jesus coming and we ask that it, it comes soon, that it comes soon. But help us this week to show grace to other people too. We commit ourselves to you and we do this in Jesus' name. Amen.